0: to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 90. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. Today we're talking about the Ministry of Women in the New Testament with Reverend Canon Professor Dorothy Lee, who is Stuart Research Professor of New Testament at Trinity College Melbourne, an ordained priest in the Anglican Church, and the author of the Ministry of Women in the New Testament, Reclaiming the Biblical Vision for Church Leadership, published by Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Josh Carroll, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this episode, we are talking with Professor Lee, who wrote a book on the ministry of women in the New Testament. Her book, just like Professor James McGrath's book, was coming out right as we were finishing up our big gender series earlier in the year. And so it's wonderful to be able to chat with Professor Lee about her book now. Josh and Chris, what did you think of our conversation with Professor Lee?
1: Yeah, I really appreciated the way that Dorothy engages with uh, the scriptures. She has a very high view of of what the scriptures say and and the and fidelity to them. Uh at, but at the same time she wants to cut past a lot of the cultural baggage which has been imbued upon you know decades and and indeed centuries of interpretation uh, and really to engage with the scriptures as they stand rather than coming to things through this this lens of what the the conversation might be about a specific topic at a specific time that's not to say she doesn't engage with uh, other solid scholarly endeavors but she does have a a, a very much a, a an ad fontes that back to the so- source type of scholarship uh, where she really wants to to dive into what the texts say for themselves
2: yeah i agree with chris and and on top of that she has that theological and christological lens where she not only just jumped straight into the text and looked at the things to that, but she also had a cohesive view of theology and inspiration of the Holy Spirit and how God himself has revealed things through scripture to help us understand the role of women in leadership. And I really appreciated that. And here's
0: our conversation with Professor Lee. Professor Lee, thanks so much for joining us.
3: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: To start off this conversation, how about we talk a little bit about the thesis of the book? What are you trying to accomplish in this book, The Ministry of Women in the New Testament?
3: Um, Thanks. Thanks, John. Yes, that is an important question. I I guess what I'm trying to argue is um, is that there's strong basis within the New Testament itself for the full participation of women in ministry in the church. Um, and, uh, and that, that, that does actually spill over, I think into parts of the early church, but my main focus is on, on the new Testament itself and on the, some of the theology that emerges from the new Testament.
1: So within that context, Dorothy, um, do you want to give us a, a bit of a snapshot of what you're doing there with the, with the book in terms of drawing out the ministry of women, uh, in that space?
3: Yes um well perhaps the method i used was to um was to begin with the the gospels uh, so a kind of um canonical search through the new testament it's it's not strictly canonical it's not strictly canonical order but but largely canonical order so that beginning with the gospels um and then uh, particularly mark and matthew then looking at Luke acts together, which is out of canonical order, and then John, and then um, at the Pauline material and then other material um, in the New Testament. So going through those, trawling through those, if you like, to look at uh, the way that women are depicted, um, the way that women engage in, in ministry, in relationship with Jesus, um, and, and to see how that, that emerges. Um, so uh not immediately going to the the nasty passages in inverted commas um the so-called nasty passages which i think these days are up for grabs um, in term in terms of their t- interpretation but beginning with um the way that women are depicted within the ministry of jesus um luke for example john um the important place that women have um in, in that ministry, uh, the extraordinary attitude that Jesus had, I think that emerges from the Gospels towards women. Um, and uh and then you know coming to Paul, uh beginning with uh the actual women he worked with. So Romans 16, for example, as as um instead of going straight to Galatians 3, um beginning with the actual women uh with Phoebe um with Junior um with um Priscilla, Prisca. And and beginning with the way that Paul is so relaxed with women, he has uh, the same attitude, in my view, as Jesus on so many things, but but also including on that openness to women and women's ministry. Um, And that's the way that I've um, uh, uh, focused the book. Um, And then, of course, Galatians three and some of its implications. And I guess that I, I say this, but I guess the premise of, of some of the, the parts of the book um, is that there is, uh, as one writer has put it, the promise of the gospel and then the living out of the gospel and uh, and gospel with a small g, good news, uh, and that the, the early church didn't completely succeed in in um, within its own environment in living out the full radical implications of the gospel as in Galatians 3, um, it, it never started a campaign to overthrow slavery, for example, but, but it would be absolute madness of us to have expected it to do so. Um, but in within its own, own culture, uh, within the church, it, it actually undermines, it pulls the rug from under slavery and from other forms of, of domination, um, which was so much a part of, of the ancient world. Um, and and therefore, you know, given that I think that not only is the script are the scriptures inspired by God, but, but the Holy Spirit continues to inspire us, um, we need to struggle with it. Therefore, and and, uh, and ask the question about uh, whether women are able to participate fully in in uh, as they are in in baptism um, into Christ, and therefore into uh, um, into ministry within the church.
0: On that point about not living up to the gospel, some scholars have felt it necessary to do what's called a, a socratic, right? The idea that we have to actually critique certain things that Paul says in the light of the gospel. In other words, Paul doesn't live up to his own ideals. Is that a move that you think is necessary in terms of reading Paul to say that Paul doesn't live up to the gospel, let's say in First Timothy 2 or in some other passages?
3: No, not exactly. Um, I, I think that Paul is very much the radical. You know, he's the lefty in the New Testament. You know, I'm, I'm not really. T- I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a joke and perhaps a silly thing to say, but but he is very much on on the edge. I mean, he he pushes the church in a, in a new direction. Thanks be to God, I might add, um, because that includes us. Um, and and he does so. Um, I think about as far as he can. Um, however, some of those passages, such as one Timothy and some of the other texts, 1 Corinthians 11, which is a really tricky text, they, I think, show him that he himself is struggling with the issues and, and that the way that people have interpreted these texts in the past is not necessarily what um, Paul intended by them. I, I don't think we can assume, um, we say that the Bible is inspired, but we forget that, that the spirit inspires and that, and that that's ongoing work. Uh, the spirit will lead you into all truths, as, as in John's gospel. It's, it's a continual presence of the spirit. And, and that means that we have the right to reinterpret the text with new knowledge and new awareness and also with, with I mean, I'm a great believer in, in diversity. You know, at the table we need as many voices as we can have um, that represent the church. And in, in actual fact at the table, at the scholarly table and at the leadership table, there's been only males um and what happens when women start to uh take their place at that table and offer their voice well i think we we get actually somewhat different interpretations and somewhat different perspectives such as 1 Timothy 2 or or uh, some of the other texts and and that's i think been well demonstrated by um by scholars like um Cynthia Westfall uh Lucy Pepiat, um And and several other scholars, and there have also been some men among them. I mean, in in Melbourne we have our own Kevin Giles, who's who's done some tremendous work on on reinterpreting scripture. Um, So we just can't assume um, that you know that the way that it's been read is the way that it it, it's the only way to read it. Uh, So so that's uh, so that therefore I wouldn't be too quick to critique Paul until we've made. Absolutely damn sure we understand him.
2: I love how you talked about um, this not being primarily, well, you're not tackling this issue primarily as a social justice issue. You're stepping first into the biblical and theological and Christological aspect of what's going on. What kind of sent you in that direction? And how come you approach it this way?
3: I (laughs) I had an extraordinary upbringing in some ways. Um, I was brought up in the Free Church of Scotland, which you've probably never heard of, but you have. Were you brought up in it?
0: I, I wasn't brought up in it, but that's the church that I attended for four years when I lived in Scotland for my PhD. Oh,
3: did or they you? Do know oh, the
1: flag okay. behind Josh's head as well.
2: I attended oh, yeah. two Sundays worth of a free church in Scotland and then went somewhere else pretty quickly.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Where I was in Aberdeen oh. and John was in St. Andrews. So. Oh,
3: were you? Of course. Well, my father was a wee free minister and... Uh, and who ministered in both Australia and Scotland in Dundee, and uh, he trained in Edinburgh, and uh, and he had he was very conservative, of course, <laughs> as everyone is in the wee freeze, and and really quite patriarchal in many ways. But on the other hand, um, he very much encouraged me in my um, in my thinking, and and my um, I mean, I studied Greek from when I was thirteen, and and at school and that was his encouragement and uh, I think he was a bit taken aback that it ended up being one of his female um, children rather than his male (laughs) child but uh, but he and I sort of had a very close relationship and he encouraged me to think through those things and when I eventually did go into ministry the last person that I'd worked with in ministry was my father because I'd taken Sunday school and um, traveled around with him a bit and and he wrote the reference for me (laughs) So um, he was a lot more open to, I think, things than and, and, and a, had a deep love of theology um, and, um, and he encouraged me to talk about it. So, so that's a funny thing for someone who calls himself a Christian feminist to say, but, you know, the, the biggest influence on my life in the early days was, uh, was, um, was my father. And, of course, also I think reading C.S. Lewis was just immensely liberating for me.
0: I have to add that my church in St. Andrews was actually considered the liberal church in the denomination because in addition to singing the psalms a cappella, we also sang some contemporary worship songs and that was of course very
3: Oh my goodness, I'm shocked.
2: And see,
0: <laughs> when really we
3: visited
2: <laughs> Well, when, when we visited I had three young boys and they came from California. You know, the worship songs, guitars and everything like that. It was too much of a too much of a, you know, 180 for them. They couldn't handle the liturgical psalms. I, I thought it was awesome, but we had some good well, friends who were in the free I, church. Though, so.
3: Occasionally I get together with free church people and we always sing a psalm. We always sing Psalm 100, Psalm 23, and it's always, people are always singing parts, you know. So, I mean, it, it was, when I was young, I hated it, hated, hated it. But but now I'm older, I, I, I sometimes when I'm in the car, I'll start singing a psalm or, you know. Um so, yeah, it, there was a beauty about it. there was a simplicity and a beauty and and also the other thing I noticed about it that I've retained was a great sense of dignity about worship. You really had a sense that you were in the presence of a holy god and uh and that's something that uh you know, in all the different styles of worship i've I've experienced, that's something that always stays with me. but um, I think it's really important to begin theologically, and I think we begin with with and you know this is galatians 3 again and the nature of of baptism christian baptism however whether we understand it as infant or believers or whatever doesn't really matter on this front but the fact is that that in paul's understanding of baptism not just in galatians 3 but also elsewhere we 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 gain a new identity in christ and 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 that means that um and and even though that we're not like Christ in in so many ways i mean none of us are like Christ because we don't live in his age but but whether even if we're female even if we're we're gentiles um even if we're uh slaves or it, unlike um as unlike Christ as is possible to be and yet in baptism through faith we're baptized into Christ and we gain a new Christ, christic can you use that word christological identity that that um that means we can represent Christ um, in, 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 in any context. Um, you know, and I, I take seriously the calling of the church and so on to that, but, but it just seems to me there's something really profound about what that new identity makes of us. Uh, Beverly Gaventa has a lot to say about that in her study of, of, of Paul um, about the radical new identity as we enter into the new age um, and live out of the new age. Um, we're talking about a whole new way of doing things, a whole new, new way of being, and a whole new identity, um, which, of course, is in continuity with our own personality. I'm not denying in that. But, but our fundamental identity is Christian, is, 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 is in Christ. And because we are in Christ, therefore, we can lead in the, in the church, not because we're on about equal rights. Um, social justice has its place, but I don't think it's here. Um, it's, it's not a matter of our right to be ordained. We have no one as a right to be ordained or to lead. Um, it's, the wrong, it's the wrong category, I think, to talk about leadership. But we do have um, the possibility of being, to use Eastern Orthodox language, an icon of Christ. Um, and to me, one of the most powerful examples of that is, is the way that the early church recognised that women could be represent Christ as martyrs. So you get that awful picture of Blandina on a pole being torn to pieces by wild animals. And and the the Christians say they seem to, their sister seemed to them as Christ. Um, So there she is able to represent Christ because she is in Christ. And we do that every act of kindness to a neighbor, we are being Christ to them. Um, And and we are encountering Christ in them in some sense. Um, And that seems to me. The, the theological place from which we need to begin. Um, and I think that that ultimately rules out. I mean, I know the idea of equality is a modern one, post-industrial, the uh, French Revolution, but, but nevertheless, I think that that it, there's an equality in that, um, in that we are all in Christ that has radical implications that we've never fully understood for the way that, we, we, that our Christian community is, and therefore uh, the possibility of transformation for the whole of society.
1: Dorothy, one of the things I really appreciate in your book is the way that you engage uh, with the the passages in One Timothy, uh, and especially with One Timothy too. And uh, in this context, you're you're not trying to to deny the the contextual nature. You're not trying to uphold this sort of um, flat reading of it. But you give a rather a more nuanced reading there, and. Especially in that context of worship, uh, which it comes in, and, and public engagement, do you want to just walk our, the listeners through that?
3: Um, yes. Uh, again, it's a question of have we under actually actually understood? I know there's a whole question about authorship there, and I, I, I never didn't want to get into it in the book, and I don't want to get into it now because it's it's in the canon, and it's some in some sense Pauline, and uh, I, I personally have problems with more texts than one one and two timothy um that that seems to me anyway never mind my views on that um you know when we we look at a a, a translation and and how we hear it let a woman learn in silence with full submission we assume that that's submission to men and and why would it be who who says (laughs) who are we submitting to as women um I think if you have, if you, I mean, it's not a fashionable way to talk these days, but if you want to learn, you have to be submissive to some extent, or we might want to say you have to be open. If you're not open to learn, you're not going to learn. And um, and we've probably all had the experience of students who are very open to learn and one or two that are not, um, that resist anything you try to teach them. That There's no sense of, now there may be reasons for that, but but if we're talking about church and being open to, to what the gospel is telling us and what we're being taught from the pulpit, um, we, we need to be open. That doesn't mean to say we're uncritical, but we need to be open to uh, the spirit speaking to us. And that, it seems to me, is is the uh, is, is the meaning there of submission, more likely. And it's it's not silence, it's quietness. It's quietness, and I think that's a quiet spirit. Now, of course, in the context of the ancient world that Chris talked to and have and talked about, and of course, we need to always to be alert to that. Um, women were meant to be modest and quiet. Um, there's no doubt about it. And uh, and even in fairly radical views, um, you know, when some of the stuff on Thecla, for example, whether she lived or didn't, is irrelevant, but. And Thecla, you know, she, she's a leader. She baptises herself. She does this and that and the other. Way countercultural stuff. And yet she's also modest. You know, we're, we're told quite clearly that she's modest. So women were expected, expected to have certain qualities. And, and, uh, and of course, that's part of this text, but it's not the only thing that's going on. It's it's about the openness to learn and in and an a quiet spirit um, as opposed to a contentious spirit. So I think that's... Um, that's the first thing about that text, which questions the way that we automatically read it. And then, if we go on, um, th- there's a question about I have permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Um, it it could well be translated, or just as well, and in my view, preferably translated, to teach in a way to dominate in such a way as to dominate. And because that word uh, to have authority has. Um, is is really is not just authority it's dominating authority now that may seem strange in the ancient world women dominating um but in ephesus it's it's possible it is possible um and that's where uh timothy is incidentally also where priscilla is isn't she in, at uh, the end of timothy his teachers um anyway um so it it could well be that in the in relation to i think lucy pepiat is the one who speaks about this about the cult of artemis how big it is in ephesus and how um, you know women may well have had quite a uh, um, quite a big uh, control within that cult uh, important figures uh, as priestesses of the goddess and so on um, so it may have led it may have led some women to actually take a very dominating view to argue that they're the ones to speak on behalf of God. Um, but whatever the context is, we don't know precisely what it is. But there, there's obviously an, or at least a fear or an actuality, of women um, in, in, dominating over men in in teaching, and and that I think is what uh, is being um, guarded against, is warned warned about here. And then when we come to uh, verse 15, this is a bit more contentious and it's certainly not my original point, she will be saved through childbearing. Um, and you know, that, that's tricky and it's it's tricky for families who have had, um, my grandmother died in childbirth, for example, and she was a very devout um, uh, Church of England woman. So um, what what does that mean? Well, I know you can't make too much of the definite article in Greek because... You can find it in odd places uh, where we wouldn't have it in English. And so there's not a, a simple correspondence, but it, there is a definite article there through, and it could be that it's the childbearing. This is Thomas Ogden, isn't it, Chris? I think who says makes this point um, that uh, it's referring to the childbearing of Mary, that is to say, through Jesus. Um, And and therefore, once again, with the cult of Artemis in mind, and Artemis was very much the goddess of childbearing um, in that context, could it be that the childbearing is a reference to to Mary's giving birth? How will they be saved? Through the childbearing, that is to to say through Christ. Um, Now, that's not the only way of looking at it, but that strikes me as a very plausible reading of this text. Um, because I, I think it, it would be absurd uh, to think that Paul is claiming here that, that um, no Christian woman will die in childbirth because, you know, even in his own day he must have known of women mm-hmm. who died in childbirth. It was so common.
0: Or that they might be saved by their own childbearing, which, of course, would undermine a justification by faith, for
2: example.
3: Uh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and insisting, you know, especially when he advises uh, women elsewhere, you know, not to remarry if they're, they're you know, so that mm. there's no uh, necessity placed on women to bear children elsewhere in, in uh, Paul's writing. So seems to it, me that's the only way to make sense of it.
0: And, and it certainly serves to uh, illustrate the fact that this is a tricky and difficult passage to understand despite what some people claim about
3: it. And that's why I think we, we need to... Um, We need to to start with not to start with these difficult passages. Don't let the agenda be set by these difficult passages. The agenda needs to be set by what we know of Paul's own experience with women, of working alongside women in mission and ministry, and and some of the passages where Paul is absolutely clear. Like 1 Corinthians 11, that nightmare of a passage, um, which I sometimes wake up in the night having nightmares over, Paul makes it absolutely clear whatever else he's saying there that women are, are able to prophesy in the church. That greatest of gifts prophecy, which is very close to what we might call preaching, they are able to do that in the church. Now, with a, with a veil or with long hair or whatever, I don't really care. I don't mind if I have to wear a veil in church in order to preach and preside at the, at the Holy Communion, then I'm happy to do that. But, but that's neither here nor there. That's a cultural question. Um, although when we were children in the Free Church, we even as little children we wore hats to church, but we weren't allowed to even to read the Scripture or to pray or anything. Complete undermining of what what Paul is actually saying there. So we need to start with the positives. You know, it's it's like a, the glass is is well, it's more than half full in my opinion. So uh, it it may be as, not as full as we want it to be, but that's because. Um, what is it, isn't it Hebrews that says something at the end of, uh, in Hebrews 11 about, you know, we're, we're all, we're saved together. We're, we're in this together. You know, we're, we're in this, you know, I mean, Paul, I imagine if we meet Paul and say to him, well, why didn't you do this? He'll say, well, why didn't you? You know, because you were the heirs of this and you were, you were called to live out the gospel. You know, so, so it's the responsibility, the baton moves on to us. Uh, we are responsible for for, uh, for living out the radical edge of the gospel.
2: And he also has that caveat in 1 Corinthians, right, where he's like, you have the mind of Christ, figure it out, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And we need to do this together. You know, it's really important we do it together, that it's it's men and women talking together and and it's not all white faces and it's you know it's it's it we need to we need that diversity of the, that is part of the very nature of the church and which paul established for us
2: so a lot of the the contentiousness about ordination of women you know takes part in more like the more traditional forms of our church right liturgical churches is that a prominent thing in australia because when you kind of look at the united states and you see the different Movements and non-denominational elements that go on uh, are the different expressions. It's it seems like we're trying to figure out where women can teach, where women can preach, but we ha- we don't have the ordination aspect of it, kind of uh, excluding women in some in some different circumstances. Yeah. That I've
3: seen. Oh, well, uh, Australia, is, I mean, as Chris Chris knows well, Australia is a bit of a mixed bag on that. Um, there's been opposition to women's ordination in uh, Sydney and its satellite diocese and also from the forward in faith, uh, uh, super Anglo-Catholic, you know, right up the top of the candlestick side of things as well. So there's been oppositions, if you like, from both ends. But but there's a strong I said, sense within the broad church, you know, the sort of um, small C Catholic um middle of the road and and um moderate evangelicals there's there's a consensus about the ordination of women that's uh that's quite strong although it's i think some of the things that the evangelical wing of the church is struggling with is uh is the question of um of obedience of wives i think that's that's a key issue it's certainly a key issue in sydney and therefore uh grounds for excluding women um because of you know the household codes um, in the Pauline corpus um, and the, the the call for wifely obedience, so that that's been that's a big issue, I think. Um, with the uh, with the more uh, uh, Catholic side, uh, forward in faith um, side, as as it's called, if you're familiar with that movement, um, they're more concerned, I think, about tradition and saying that women have never been ordained um, and therefore they can't be. I mean. <laughs> great argument we've never done it before so we're never going to do it i just never know where to go with that argument i mean a it's not true and b it's stupid in all christian charity (laughs) i think the obedience thing i think it's probably worth saying something about some of those texts because i think the the work of scholars such as i was very dependent on a number of scholars um including um men such as um is it Gordon Fee? Yeah, Gordon Fee and um, Craig Keener, who's one of my favourites. Um, and uh, and they, they've argued that, and F.F. Bruce, of course, did uh, before them, um, argued strongly that, you know, in a context in the ancient context, of, you know, when you think about a woman of, well, a woman, as they would have called her, of 14 or 15, marrying a man of around 30, um, she has no, well, very little education um, she may not be able to read or write, mind you. He might not either, but there's more of a chance that he can. He's got out, out experience of the outside world. Um, he he's uh, and whereas she's been much more domestically confined, to a greater or lesser extent. I know it wasn't the same all right across the ancient world. Um, but you know it makes sense that the leadership in the family would would lie with the husband it makes it makes perfect sense within that context Um, he's the one with the knowledge and it may be that some of those um, 1 Corinthians 14 about you know learn from your husbands at home could well be as as Kina suggests you know that the women don't even understand the Greek properly it may not be their mother tongue and so they're sort of chattering together and and, you know, so they ask the person in the family who's the one that's got more knowledge, and that is the husband. But that makes no, if you translate that into our context today, it makes no sense, you know, for women who are as well, if not someone's better educated than their husbands, who who may be the same age or even older, um, who have as much life experience and experience of public life as men. Um, it, it makes no sense. And, it seems to me, and, uh, and and I think those arguments, that's where we really need to take seriously the context and understand some of the principles behind those household codes, which are, in fact, immensely liberating. They're based on love. Um, they're They're based on a radically new vision of the family from what we might find if we read Aristotle, for example. So, again, it seems to me it's important to reread, not to make assumptions. Um, about what a text means and also to take into into account uh, what we know of the context of the ancient world.
2: Yeah, I was kind of thinking along the lines of the other question too, like there's certain gatekeepers of what women can and can't do in ministry. Like, well, if it's a denomination that says ordination for women is not possible and then if they say that, then women can't do certain things within the church. And when you come to the, you know, the U.S., there's just, you know, it's kind of the Wild West. Sometimes people are in all the denominations or not. There's non-denominational, non-denominational churches everywhere. So usually it's just kind of up to the elders or the pastor if they can decide if what women can do. Can they preach? Can they teach? Can they preach under a? If there's a man in the room or if there's a man sitting on the stage, all these kind of weird things that kind of uh, roll into this whole thing. I guess what I, what I'd want to ask is. Where have you kind of experienced the most pushback? Is it from the ordination part? Like we shouldn't ordain women, therefore this, 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 this. Or is it the teaching part? Like we don't want to let women get up in front and preach unless there's a man or whatever.
3: I think it's been because um, I'm on the Doctrine Commission of our church uh, for my sins. And uh, and I think it's been the teaching thing, really. Um Years ago, I was asked to speak at a conference, a a national conference, of probably before Chris was born, Um, way back in the old days, Chris. Um, Hey, Dorothy,
1: John's younger than me, just so you know.
3: I I just have to say that the other day, my four-year-old granddaughter said to me as we drove past a park, she said, in the olden days, I used to play there, so even a four-year-old can have olden days.
2: I'm the old man in the crew, pretty much. (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel
0: like we should say that Chris and Professor Lee are colleagues.
1: Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we often sit back to back with, like, to each other in, well, when we're yeah, allowed in yeah, the our office. Our
3: offices are right, are right next door.
1: So we, so we can't face each other. Yeah, otherwise, it-
3: Chris occasionally produces chocolate, more to the point. He has been known to. As,
1: as in I buy chocolate and it's in my office as opposed to producing it.
3: Yes, all right. <laughs> like
1: I, I sit down and, and lay an egg.
2: Chris <laughs> is really talented, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be like, wow, awesome.
3: I know. I know. It's too much, really. Every time I hear about something you can't do, I think, Yes. <laughs>
2: Well, there it's you go. I can't, egg, I can't lay an egg, Dorothy.
1: I can't lay an egg.
3: Sorry, I completely lost the point I was making then. Oh, yes, about being on the Doctrine Commission. Yeah, and and at this conference um, there were some people who wouldn't come to my Bible studies because it was a woman teaching. And I guess the question I want to ask, and I have asked in the Doctrine Commission, and I've not re- yet received an answer is Why? Why would God ordain that um, for all time? Why? What is it about women and men that mean that mean that in the home and in the church they can't lead unless it's over other women or small children? Like what is it about the nature of women? Because I think, in a way, it's something C.S. Lewis said about the universe is true wherever you fairly test it. Um, there's something about um um there's there has to be something about the nature of women. And therefore, I think if you think women need to wives need to obey their husbands and and uh, and um, in in church and in, in the home and therefore with these implications for not leading the church, then you shouldn't be supporting women as politicians or as lawyers or as doctors or any position of authority. Um because th- that means that God has not endowed them with those gifts. Now, I mean, you know, whatever your politics, Angela Merkel is about to retire and she's been an admirable leader. Um, you know, we, we can give lots of examples, mind you. We can give some contrary examples as well. But uh, but even with Margaret Thatcher, it wasn't the question of her leadership, was it? <laughs> A whole lot of other issues. Sorry, I'm getting into politics here, so I'll stop. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that uh, If we think that women need to obey, then it's because there's something in the nature of women um, in their creation, the way that God has created them, not to lead. And in that case, they ought not to be university (coughs) lecturers or doctors like Chris's wife or a whole lot of other things. That's just consistent because God is not irrational. Um, God doesn't make irrational commands that we're asked to obey um, mindlessly. Um, So... So that's, that's not an argument from scripture, but I think it is a scriptural argument in the broad sense. Now, I think the ancient world would have had a, a different answer to that question. Um, you know, I think they would have said that leadership was a manly quality um, rather than a womanly, although they allowed for exceptions. And that's where I think the, the early church was really very radical in its uh, acceptance of, of junior as an apostle, even though we're tooth and nail against that. And yet, um, you know, Paul and his, I think because of the gospel, was able to, to rise above his own culture again and again in many ways, actually.
1: One of our other co-hosts who unfortunately can't be with us today is Grace Emmett, and she presented a paper recently at our British New Testament Conference, uh, which included a series of um, sort of statistics and, and anecdotal uh, reasons as to why women don't study Paul. The and, and uh, many of them involve that uh, involve things such as uh, you know, the people seem to be or scholars seem to be setting their ways on Paul. Women scholars end up being mansplained during the Q and A. Um, Pauline sections at SBL feel like a bros club and things like that. Um, I'm interested. You're prim, you 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 have come to this work through a Johannine lens. We're both John scholars. Uh, not a Paul scholar, and yet most of the time, the the heat and the fire in this debate ends up in Paul, um, or, or or drawing from the Pauline uh, corpus. Interested in whether or not you find a difference there, coming from to this from John rather than uh, starting uh, in Paul uh, with all of those inherent uh, background uh, <clears throat> that that comes to it uh, from there.
3: Yeah, um, I think uh, I think we have to resist letting. Um, other people set the agenda for us. And, uh, and therefore, uh, I think the starting point has been, um, we have to challenge the starting point. And um, I would, I think we start with, uh, as I think Paul would, with the resurrection um, well, that's one place to start. We could start with the ministry of Jesus, but we could start with the resurrection and the fact that women are, are witnesses to women disciples, are witnesses to the empty tomb and to the presence of the risen one. And uh, and uh, that is not something that the, the, the early church would have made up. No way would they have made up something like that with women as witnesses. And I think that that gives women a dignity and and um, an authority that's unprecedented um, because of the the, the honour of of being. I mean, look at Matthew, Matthew's account. You know, we always go on about the the appearance of the Lord on the mountain to the 11, but look at the appearance of the Lord to the two, um, which precedes it. It's completely gratuitous. They don't need it. They've run away with joy. Any doubts we might have had of what's going on in Mark 16 are are laid to rest by Matthew 28. Um, They don't need to meet the risen Christ. They've already believed. They've run off with joy. They've run back with joy with the message, and yet they meet him and he repeats the message. They fall at his feet without any doubt in their minds. Um, It's an extraordinary moment. Jesus does not need to appear to them, and yet he does. Um, And... I mean, what, why do we ignore that story? And yet, when we come to the eleven, sorry, I'm doing a little bit of a gender thing here, which is I know bad, but you know, when it comes to the eleven, um, it's it says uh, you know they worshipped, but now it could mean but some doubted or but they doubted. Um, the Greek, it's hoide, they, it could be either, it could go either way. So there's doubt in their hearts. There's no doubt in the, in in the the hearts of the two. So why don't we take as seriously the commission to them as, as seriously as we do to the 11. Now, I know there's a mountain there and that's really important. And I don't want to deny that's the climax. There's a the whole Trinitarian formula that comes out of that and the commission to mission. And, and it's, it's a fabulous moment in the gospel, but it's preceded by another fabulous moment. And it's, it's just like Um, Also, uh, the uh, genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, which is incredible, you know, this whole panoply of male sexual activity going down through the ages, it's just quite exhausting to read. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit goes, no, not going to go that way. And then all of a sudden, the verb to beget becomes give birth. And Mary gives birth without any attention to that to, to all those generations behind, something new happens. And uh, I think, uh, I mean, I, I personally consider the virginal conception to be an enormously important doctrine um, for a whole lot of reasons. Uh, I know that I'm often alone in some more liberal circles on that view, but, but I think it's, in, it's integral to Matthew's understanding that God works in old ways but also something new. Um, something new happens here, um, and uh, and I think there's there's something in some of these texts that that I would want to start with rather than starting with the difficult passages or starting with Paul. I mean, let let's start with the Gospels. Let's start, and you know, I'm using Matthew's Gospel, and Chris has asked me about John, but of course, the great thing in John is is the, the extraordinary women there, the mother of Jesus, you know, the Samaritan woman. Um, Martha and Mary of Bethany and then of course Mary Magdalene um, who's the as the early church called her the apostle of the apostles uh, who says I have seen the Lord um, and who comes to uh, whose story is just such a moving story of coming to full Easter faith and who then proclaims um, she's of course not believed I think that's implied by the fact that they're still cowering behind locked doors immediately after it John um, 2019 but but, you know, that that's where I want to start. I mean, but I'm a Johannine person, so I want to start with the Gospels. But even if you want to start with Paul, you have to start with Paul's activity and, and, and Paul's teaching rather than the agenda being set by, by more fundamentalists.
2: I think it's really interesting too. We just did a series on apologetics and it brought up all the apologetic stuff from my past that I was steeped in. And one of the one of the things that we say, Hey, the gospels are legitimate. They're real historical things because women were the first people that saw, you know, the resurrected Jesus, nobody else would do that. So if they're making up a gospel and they're trying to do all these cool, different things, they surely wouldn't have had women be the first people that saw Jesus. But then there's like this paradox where the same scholars that will say women, you know, the gospels are so legitimate, so real because of this, there's a paradox where, they're doing what you're talking about they're they're kind of ignoring the theological aspect of it they're ignoring the dignity aspect of how jesus wrote rose the women to that status and, and of equality with men i just i just notice a paradox in that how we're so quick to jump and say well this is the gospel because it's real and because it's true and here's cool evidence for it but then when it comes to the other thing we're like
3: yeah you know i no it's amazing isn't it I- I think, and and also, I think there's there's a whole question too about about the gospels as well, and that is that, um, which doesn't necessarily alleviate that. Is it a paradoxical contradiction that you're talking about? But um, I think we we should assume that women are present unless told otherwise. Um, so that if you look at um, Luke eight two to three, where you've got the women who are ministering, I think, to Christ, not to not also to the 12, but you've got the two groups, the holy women and the 12. Um, and uh, and consistently I think Luke means us to understand that they're present through the whole thing. Um, I, I assume, for example, that when the 70 are sent out on mission, that, that includes women as well as men. Um, perhaps husbands and wives would go together, perhaps brother and sister, whatever, uh, two men, two women, whatever. But, you know, that, that includes women. If you, if you carry that right through to the cross and what follows in Luke 24, um, you've got the presence of women. Why would they not be there the whole time? Because actually, hello, at Pentecost, there they are again. So our picture is determined, is it by Hollywood, you know, the, the 12 men following Jesus, usually literally. But, in fact, we know that there's a large crowd who followed jesus probably came and went and there'd be kids running around sometimes we know there were people brought children to jesus so um, there's a much more complex group of disciples It includes women it includes other men as well um, and so we w- we would i think naturally assume that they're present unless we're told otherwise but i think we do the opposite i think we think that in our imagination we think uh, that group of twelve are the only disciples, the only real disciples. But that's not true. I mean, the, the the gospels are not always entirely consistent in their use of of the language. Well, they don't have to be. But but there's a wider group of disciples than just the twelve. And there's always that small group of women corresponding to this this the the inner group of men, the inner group of women, the holy women, um, who are also disciples. And that's why I tend to refer to them instead of talking about the disciples and the women. Um, the male disciples, the female disciples, uh, the the men disciples, the women disciples. I think is probably a more accurate picture of what's going on in the gospels.
1: Uh, yeah, Dorothy, I, I think yeah, that's such a good point that it is often perceived as as those twelve men, and and from a bro- broader point, it's twelve white men usually uh, they, oh, they're absolutely. construed as as Western. White guys, and which I think just really contributes to that to that broness of how scholars interpret uh the disciples uh, and interpret the what's going on there and yet being able to I- interject the the female voice which has often been minimized or removed there is actually a very valuable contribution. Uh, it's one of the things I think you've done really well in this book. Mm.
3: Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that.
1: It's the uh, Alpha and
2: Omega fraternity is what they are, the bros.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
3: Yeah, that's right.
1: (laughs) So, Dorothy, as as a final question, um, we've just also interviewed James McGrath on his book, uh, What Jesus Learned from Women, so where he seeks to invert the question and think about in a narratival way uh, what Jesus... uh, might have learnt from women that he engaged with uh, and and how he engaged with them. I'm interested in your reflections uh, after having written this book on the ministry of women uh, where do you see uh, that occurring uh, what what has um, what maybe has Jesus learnt from women and what can we learn from women uh, in in this?
3: Um, yes, that's a very good question. Uh, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the question about what Jesus learnt from women um and and this is on the not on the basis of having read the book, so I could well change my mind. Um, I mean, I, I think that Jesus obviously learnt from his mother. Um, there can be no doubt that I mean, I I don't myself share Catholic views about the Immaculate Conception of Mary, um, and that Mary is born without sin. I, I think that contradicts the picture we have in Mark's gospel, but but I think there's there's also a sense in which if you look at the way that Mary is portrayed in in both Luke and John. Um, She's clearly a a woman of, well, quite clearly a woman of faith. Someone has called her the first Christian in Luke's gospel. And and she, uh, so her faith is, um, her faith and goodness, I think, are are communicated to Jesus. And uh, I see Jesus being um, a, in many ways, female-identified male, Um, because of the virginal conception, that uh, his conception comes only through his humanity is dependent entirely on a woman. And that means that he is, I think, attuned to women um, more than most men are, Um, and therefore uh, an openness to learn uh, um, from from women, I I would assume that. um, I guess I get nervous if it's going to lead us to the Canaanite slash Syrophoenician woman in Mark and Matthew. Um, because I, I don't think that's a story about Jesus learning from a woman. Um, I think that uh, I, I don't read it in that, the way that a number of feminist um, writers do and, and you know, sort of say, oh, great, we've got a story where Jesus learned from a woman. Um, I don't think Jesus, the beloved son, overcomes, has to overcome prejudice. Um, that I think doesn't fit it with the Christology of either Mark or Matthew's gospel, in my opinion. Um, whatever it may have happened historically on that on that occasion. but but I think Jesus openness to learn uh, from others, I think is uh, I think we we need to assume that. But I don't think the the Gospels are primarily concerned with that question, I think it's uh so I have to read the book, but I'm not sure it's 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 our question and it's a legitimate question for us to ask, but I don't think the Gospels are going to answer it because they're not concerned with that, they're not concerned with that. Um, they're, they're much more concerned with Jesus' proclamation of the, of the, the reign of God um, and eternal life in John's gospel. Um, they're more concerned with those things. I mean, the gospels are, I know that they're, we now know that they're biographies, they're, they're histories in the ancient sense, but they're still gospels, they're still uh, manifestations of the gospel. They're still proclamatory, if there is such a word. Um, and uh, and therefore they're not asking those sorts of questions. doesn't mean we can't ask them, but I, I don't think it's the right question to be asking of the gospel.
0: Professor Lee, thank you so much for joining us today and talking with us about the Ministry of Women in the New Testament.
3: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.